0: Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable We have a Patreon, an Amazon book list, a coffee, and an Audible affiliate link so if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com and of course just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. Fairies, come take me out of this dull world, for I would ride with you upon the wind, run on top of the dishevelled tide and dance upon the mountains like a flame. Fairies, changelings and herbalist doctors might seem like characters in a winding tale of medieval folklore today, but in 1895 Ireland bore witness to a case that saw these facets of folk tradition flare up in the human world in a very real way when Michael Cleary, a skilled tradesman of County Tipperary, set fire to his wife, burning her to death. As the body of Bridget Cleary was placed in the ground, Her husband was convinced that he would see his wife again, riding on the back of a grey horse as she emerged from an invisible plane. The body in the ground was merely that of a changeling, an imposter placed in his house by the fairies. By setting her on fire, all he had done was expedite the process of return. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben, and we're here today with a proper full-on episode. I hope you've all been enjoying the daily short, like Yesterday Today episodes, as much as I've enjoyed making them. They've been really good fun. But today, I'm back with a nitty-gritty of a full-on episode, and it's most certainly a gritty one. I'm also very excited to say that in the second half of this episode, we have a guest. I've been very lucky and honoured to invite onto the show Finn Dwyer from the Irish History Podcast, and he's going to be joining for the second half. So once the story's finished, definitely worth listening to the second half if normally you just switch it off. I know some people do. It's not me talking to myself this week actually got a guest and he actually knows what he's talking about. So definitely worth hanging on for that. Before we start, I just want to give a quick thanks to all the new patrons. There's quite a few because obviously last episode didn't quite get it in. So we've got Corvus, Claudia, Mary, Sharona, Gemma, Jennifer, Kimmy Mass, Haley, Richard, Patrick and Kieran. Thanks so much, guys. I say, I say it every two weeks and you think I get bored, but I absolutely don't. Um, of saying thanks to the new patrons because, like I say, it's just incredibly helpful. In so many ways, it helps to show. Uh, I've been able to really extend my research materials and the things that I can afford to subscribe to every month, academic resources that I've been able to subscribe to, which help me to research the episodes. And having those resources has just been just amazing and in fact I look back now and I wonder how I did the episodes without them in the past because not only do they give like an extra depth to most of the stuff I'm researching they quite often have quite unique insights into the episode material they also just make it all so much more efficient as well so yeah thanks thanks you guys and thanks all the patrons super helpful and always really great to have you So let's go. This week, it's actually a listener request from Discord. Uh, Diz on Discord mentioned this one and suggested it. I'd never heard of it before. She's mentioned it. But when I looked it up straight away, I knew it was something that I wanted to do. So I put it sort of on the list quite high up to something that I could get on with. And this is it. This is Bridget Cleary Gone With The Fairies. 19th century Ireland was a volatile land, politically, socially and culturally. In the space of 100 years, it rose to high prosperity and fell to desperate poverty. Rebellions fought against Anglo-Irish rule, rural communities pushed back against state legislation for more humane rights, along with better land securities, and sectarian violence saw a religious cultural grasp tighten and falter. Education was reformed, and the Irish language itself saw a steep decline in usage. After a boom in population, famine and large volumes of emigration stripped communities to the bone. And finally, as prosperity returned, modernisation, industrialisation, and globalisation turned familiar landscapes on their heads. In the space of just two generations, a family could have lived through all of this and much more. To say that the social norms of Ireland in the dying throes of the 19th century could be complicated would be a gross understatement. Bridget Cleary, born Bridget Boland, was 26 years old in 1895. She was described of middle height, brownish hair, blue eyes and regular features, a pretty woman. The daughter of Patrick Boland, a farm labourer, and his wife Mary Boland, Bridget had three elder brothers, Michael, Edmund, and William. Though by 1895 they had either died unfortunately young or all left the Bolands' hometown of Ballyvadley in the Irish county of Tipperary. Records are not clear on the fates of the three Boland brothers. However, with the death rates so high and the emigration figures so large, that one or the other seems highly likely and far from unusual. In 1851, the population of Ballyvadley had been 112 but by 1891, the number sat at only 31 people living in 9 houses. One thing was clear, and that was that they were no longer around the family home. Bridget's mother, too, had passed away in recent years, and so Bridget lived in a relatively small family unit with her father, Patrick Boland, and husband, Michael Cleary. They lived in a modern, slate-roofed stone house. Ballyvadley Vadley was extremely rural, but it was not entirely isolated. Clonmel, a large town that served as an important railway junction, lay only 13 miles to the south. Drangan, three miles to the north, and Fettered, five miles to the west, all of which had populations in the thousands, oil-lamp-lit paved streets, schools, surgeries, churches and police barracks. During the 1880s, Bridget had herself moved to Clonmel to train as a dressmaker. It was a skilled and respectable trade, and it was in Clonmel that she had met her soon-to-be husband, Michael Cleary. Michael Cleary was born in Killinal, eight miles to the north of Ballyvadley, though by the 1880s he lived in Clonmel and worked as a cooper, making barrels as a skilled tradesman. He was nine years Bridget's senior, and when they married in August of 1887, the pairing would have caused tongues to wag. The age gap was one matter, but Bridget's young age of 18, too, was nine years younger than the average age of marriage at that time. Though, with both husband and wife working a skilled trade, it was perhaps less of a strange match-up than their ages might have led some to believe. Besides, during the first years of their marriage, age was not the only unorthodox factor that caused gossip to spread. After Bridget completed her apprenticeship, she moved back to Valle possibly to help her father nurse her sick mother, and she had decided to stay living in her hometown. Michael Cleary visited her on the weekends, but with the distance in their marriage, rumours of affairs flew through the small population of Ballyvadley freely. On Bridget fell accusations that she was carrying on an affair with her neighbour, 24-year-old William Simpson. Simpson was a particularly unpopular man in the village of Ballyvadley, given that he lived on land with his wife and two children that had been repossessed from a previously evicted tenant tending to the land under employ of the landlord. Such men were known as emergency men. These were people who were positively despised in the local communities, with population-wide boycotts often put in place that would refuse to deal with them socially or financially, even refusing to sell them goods in shops or entire classrooms of children being emptied as other members of the local communities withdrew their own children to keep them away from the emergency men. Michael Cleary fared little better and he too fell under suspicion of carrying on an affair in Clonmel. The affairs were, essentially, both baseless rumour and in early 1895, Michael Cleary moved to Ballyvadley to live with Bridget and her father. He had a workshop in the yard to continue his trade whilst Bridget had a sewing machine in their bedroom which doubled as her dressmaking workshop. The couple were both educated and they worked respected trades To many outsiders, they would have been a successful partnership, though the fact that they were childless, highly unusual at the time, only caused the rumours to keep rolling. Despite the rumours, there were voices that expressed no overt signs of unhappiness in the couple's daily goings-on. Financially, the Cleary household would have been a step above their rural neighbours. Michael Cleary would have made the wages of a skilled craftsman and Bridget too, with their lack of children, was free to continue her own business as dressmaker. On the side, Bridget also partook in the keeping of hens, a common business venture for women in rural Ireland. The maintenance of the birds fell solely onto the shoulders of the wives and was far from an easy undertaking. It was also rarely taken seriously by some men who perhaps felt a certain threat from the practice. However, the reward for those keepers lie in the money earned from the selling of eggs which remained independent from their husband's influence. In many respects, Bridget was the embodiment of a modern, cosmopolitan woman, working hard and earning a good living with a certain degree of independence from her husband and her family. She dressed fashionably in bright colours and she wore gold earrings in her pierced ears, setting her somewhat apart from the other women of Bally Vadley. The Singer-branded sewing machine in the Cleary's bedroom was not a cheap hobbyist device either, these machines were often bought on an installment basis and it seemed likely that Bridget too would have been making regular payments on her own as a long-term investment. Caring for our hens and selling their eggs would have taken quite a large portion of Bridget's time, and so it was that on the 4th of March 1895, that Bridget was traipsing up to a local ring fort named Kilina Grana to sell eggs to the house of her father's cousin, Jack Dunn. At 55 years old, Dunn was an elderly-looking man with a left leg slightly shorter than his right, a lasting remnant of an earlier fracture that caused him to walk with a limp. When she arrived at the Dunn household, she found no one home and sat out to wait upon their return for a period, though unfortunately, the weather saw a turn and Bridget instead found herself walking home in the cold rain. By the next day, the 5th of March 1895, Bridget found herself in bed with a headache and a fever. Whilst today this might seem fairly straightforward and a common outcome of being caught in a cold downpour, in 1895 a fever was not always simply a fever, especially not when you'd fallen ill after visiting a house built on the ring fort of Kylanagranag. Fairy forts, raths, or ring forts are the remains of ancient dwellings dating as far back as the Iron Age, with the majority having been built during 500 to 900 AD. These primitive forts are dotted throughout Ireland with suggestions of numbers that extend upwards of 60,000. In some areas, remains of the ring forts can be seen in concentrations of one for every two kilometers of land. The earthen structures were originally used to house small, circular settlements, surrounded often by wooden fencing and the earth surrounding them banked up to provide a defensive area around the settlement. Behind each dirt bank, a ditch would be formed from the shifting of the mud, creating a secondary level of defence and often wooden palisades would have sat atop. Nowadays the wood has fallen and the remains rotted and degraded so that all that is left are the banks themselves. At times there are low surrounding supporting walls built predominantly in the west of Ireland and others found in the east without. Whilst the term fort may conjure images of warfare and martial excitement, The reality is less violent. Most were built to protect the inhabitants and their cattle from predators. In early Irish societies, laws sprang up to explain the ring forts. In a time before the sciences of archaeology or anthropology were widespread, serious pursuits, stories were spun to make sense of these peculiar, circular arrangements creeping up through the grass in the hillsides. Stories of fairies and of other worlds were born into the local oral histories. And Ringforts commonly became known as the home of many mythological creatures, eventually settling on the small people, or the good people, as fairies were commonly known. These fairies lived in a preternatural realm that coexisted alongside our own. They lived parallel lives to humans. They kept cows, enjoyed whiskey, hurling, Gaelic football, music, singing, and dancing, liked gold, milk, and tobacco and hated iron, fire, salt, urine, and Christianity. Often invisible, descriptions of fairies vary with every account told. Smaller, of same height, and at times taller than humans, they dressed in green dresses and took on a vaguely human-like appearance. They there were also known to shapeshift and take on the appearance of animals. Rabbits and hares were the major suspects for a fairy in animal disguise. Whilst generally benevolent, they were known to cause mischief amongst the human realm and they could almost certainly be a bringer of bad luck, causing poor harvests, sickness and stolen farm produce. This mischievous trait was severely magnified if their ring dwellings were disturbed in any way by humans. Blindness was attributed to a human glimpse in the fairy world, whilst death and sickness in childbirth was often explained by fairy involvement, along with numerous cases of untimely or unusual deaths along with inexplicable mental health problems and disability. The fairies did not always explain the negative, however, and so too did they find themselves the explanations of good fortune or the helpers when people found themselves in desperate situations. The ring forts, so numerous in the landscape, were spoken of as gates that bridged the hidden world with the physical, allowing fairies to influence the human realm and for humans to be taken away into the fairy realm, a practice which was used to explain the onset of much of the bad luck with concerns to illness. The taking of children in particular became a common mischief perpetrated by fairies who would steal away a human, often a child, and leaving a changeling in their place. The changeling would often have some physical disability or illness and would therefore need to be treated. Enter the fairy doctor a skilled herbalist and enchanter of sorts, knowledgeable of the fairy realm and at times an individual with direct contact to the invisible realms. The fairy doctors held an important and esteemed position in rural communities of Ireland, particularly amongst the poor and uneducated classes who could little afford or understand a modern medical practitioner. The fairy doctor's primary role was to offer herbs, remedies and instructions on rites to restore order to the situation, usually enforcing the fairies to return the original victim to their rightful place in the human realm, and their services were, for the most part, given as an act of charity, though some were also happy to carve a living from the practice. Whether or not they made the practice their primary means of income, most extended back through generations, practicing cures that had been handed down from an ancestral root that often stemmed from a long-past family member who was at one point in time touched by the fairies. These folk beliefs span through centuries of history and extends in minorities through until today with differing levels of seriousness and superstition. In 2017, member of the Irish Parliament, Danny Healy Ray proclaimed that subsidence problems with the road were caused by the proximity of the local ring forts to the modern structure, claiming that, There are numerous ferry forts in that area. I know that they are linked. Anyone that tampered with the ring forts back over the years paid a high price and had bad luck. There was something in these places you shouldn't touch. Whilst Danny Healy Ray was a contentious character in Irish politics at best, well known for his controversial statements, and his comments on fairies were viewed with a sceptical and, by many, scathingly derisive eye, it does show that the roots of belief can have strong heritage and leave traces in the mind even today. In 1895, we find a time with similar but much more compounded and complicated beliefs. The modernisation that swept through Ireland in the latter half of the 19th century was quick to push back against the elder stories of magical realms and fairy folk though perhaps not everyone was entirely ready to embrace this new and different age that threatened a way of life that they could understand and were comfortable with and held a degree of social currency within. The day after Bridget got caught in the rain, Tuesday the 5th of March, she fell ill with a fever and a headache and took to bed to rest. Her illness continued throughout the week, she was nursed daily by both Michael Cleary, who had spent a week with little sleep whilst he worked and took care of his wife, and Bridget's cousin, Joanna Burke. On Friday, Jack Dunn visited Bridget and Michael at their home and sowed a seed that would linger in the mind of Michael Cleary. As he approached Bridget, he exclaimed, That's not Bridgie Boland. He told Michael Cleary that the fairies had visited Bridget, and that the proof was in the fact that one of her legs was shorter than the other. Whether or not this was a serious comment on behalf of Dunn is unknown. Had he simply been implying that Bridget was not herself due to the illness or had he meant that, quite literally, the woman in the bed was not the original Bridget? As the events unfold, it does seem likely that what he said was meant in the literal. But regardless of his intentions, his comments bore deep into Michael Cleary's mind and began to fester. By Saturday the 9th, with still little improvement in her condition, Bridget's father, Patrick Boland, walked five miles to Fettered to fetch the doctor for a house visit. Dr. William Crean, however, was a busy man and one who was prone to drink. He failed to visit the Clearies, and so, on Monday the 11th, this time Michael walked to Fettered to attempt to rouse the doctor in the hope he might get a picture and realised that the Cleary's weren't going to leave him in peace until he had done his duty. Despite this persistence, the doctor still did not show, and so on Wednesday, Michael Cleary left his house at 5am to walk to Fethood once again. This time, the doctor did get the message, and he promised to visit Bridget that afternoon. Whilst in Fethead this time, the doctor was not the only medical practitioner that Cleary chose to visit, when he returned home in the afternoon, he carried with him a pouch of herbs to create a more traditional remedy for Bridget. On the same day, their neighbour William Simpson sent his servant as a messenger to Drangan to ask for a visit from a priest. Whilst this might sound extreme and given the fact that the priest, upon his arrival, read Bridget clearly her last rites, it was not altogether an unusual state of affairs and whilst Bridget was by now quite ill, The rites were read purely as a safety measure by the priest, who admitted he had done so only as a basic security, and he thought there was no particular urgency in Bridget's condition. How Michael perceived this ritual, however, is a different matter. By now, he had watched his wife's illness progress for over a week without much improvement, and he returned home from Fetter to find Jack Dunn, Joanna Burke, and Father Cornelius Ryan in the house in a sombre mood. The doctor had already visited and had been of little help. He had diagnosed Bridget with a mild bronchitis, but shown no immediate concern. That evening, Michael clearly mixed the herbs he had bought in fettered and fed the resulting medicine to Bridget. Whilst Bridget took the herbs voluntarily, she had shown her own reservations concerning her husband's suspicions earlier that day, when she had told Joanna Burke that her husband was making a fairy of me. Joanna had tried to avail her concerns by telling her not to pay any mind to these suggestions. Tired from working, caring for his wife and traipsing across the county in pursuit of an elusive doctor, that evening Michael Cleary sat down with Jack Dunn in his house. Dunn had private concerns about Bridget and he thought wise to voice them to Michael. He had little faith in the doctor's medicine and the herbs that Michael had obtained in fed might have been a step in the right direction but, he insisted, it is Dennis Gani, a fairy doctor in Kailatli, that Michael really needs to visit. He, Dunn insured would set Bridget's condition straight and he expressed some disappointment in Cleary for not visiting him sooner. As law tells it, Cleary had a right to visit the fairy doctor after the fifth day of Bridget's illness and today was already way beyond this preternatural waiting period. The next morning at First Light, Thursday the 14th of March, Michael Cleary once again hit the road in search for someone to help his wife. This time he was taking Dunn's advice and walking to Kailatli, another four-mile trek into the hills to the south of Ballyvadley. He also stopped by the Simpsons to request they send for the priest once again, though on this occasion the priest sent reply that there was little more he could do and elected not to pay a second visit. The same messenger also stopped by Jack Dunn's house and asked him to go down to the Cleary house and Michael Cleary himself stopped in on Mary Kennedy, asking her too to visit Bridget. He spent the majority of the day on his mission to attain the remedy from Ganny, which would, in all hopes, put to bed the problem of his wife's illness. He returned home that afternoon with fresh herbs and instructions on how to administer them, along with certain rites and rituals. Upon his return home, he was greeted with sour news. His father had passed away in their hometown of Killinel that afternoon and the wake was to be held that night. It would have been a crushing blow for Cleary, though he made no intention of attending his father's wake. For now, he had business with the fairies first, though he might, he assured family, be able to make it later that night. At around 9pm, the Cleary House was crammed with family members and bystanders who Michael had asked to aid in one way or another, either in sending for people to visit or in holding a candle to light the room. There were nine people in total, Michael Cleary, Bridget's father Patrick Boland, her aunt Mary Kennedy, her four cousins Patrick, Michael, James and William Kennedy, Jack Dunn and William Ahern. On their way to the house also was their neighbours, William and Minnie Simpson, and Bridget's cousin, Joanna Burke, who had been nursing Bridget every day since her onset of bronchitis. Michael Cleary was busying himself preparing the herbs he had retrieved from Ganny. He was instructed, either by Ganny or Dunn, to boil the herbs in new milk, the first milk taken from a cow after calving, and he had sat by the fireside stirring the mixture, bringing it to boil. He was midway through forcing this milk upon his wife when the Simpsons and Joanna Burke arrived. The door to the house was locked, but they heard shouting from inside. Take it you old bitch or I'll kill you. There were other shouts too as a voice erupted. Away she go, away she go. When Michael eventually opened the front door to the three late visitors, he told them the house was full of fairies. He had, in fact, not open the door to let the visitors in. He was quite unaware of their waiting. He was simply opening the door to let the fairies out. The scene inside the house was not a particularly cosy one. Patrick Boland was alone in the kitchen whilst Bridget was lying on the bed. Jack Dunn was holding her head down onto the mattress whilst Patrick, William and James Kennedy were pinning her arms and legs to the bed. Michael Cleary had a saucepan of milk and herbs and the young William Ahern held a candle in the corner alongside Mary Kennedy. Michael Cleary continued to attempt to feed his wife the milk, screaming at her to answer in the name of God if she was Bridget Boland, the wife of Michael Cleary. Bridget, for her part, protested, screaming back that the milk was bitter, and attempting to resist drinking it. This was the third time that evening that the milk and herbs had been forced upon Bridget. Another threatening part of the ritual had been to threaten her with fire by brandishing a red-hot poker heated on the fireplace and pushing it towards her face. Fire was a known bane of the fairies. Likewise, a foul concoction of urine and hen's excrement had similar banishing qualities and as such, Cleary and Dunn had mixed up a further saucepan of this awful making and tossed it over Bridget's face on several occasions. The reports of this differ slightly, and some say it may have been water and wine, though it seems likely that that may well have been purely wishful thinking, as several witnesses named it as a noxious fluid. As all of this took place, the people in the room clapped their hands together and shouted, Away with you, come home Bridget Boland, in the name of God. Jack Dunn threatened loudly to make down a good fire and we will make her answer. All the while, Bridget lay in bed screaming. The situation was desperate. If the men's questions were not answered to their satisfaction by midnight, the real Bridget Boland would be lost to the fairies forever. And so, at 11.30pm, in a last-ditch effort, they carried her to the fireplace and threatened her with the heat of the flames. Again, they screamed at her to tell them that she was Bridget Boland. Bridget screamed back that she was... And after 10 minutes the men carried her back to the bed. Finally, after several hours the horrific ordeal was done. Midnight passed and the men relaxed, apparently satisfied that the whole thing had been a success. Bridget lay in the bed moaning to herself and speaking in confused strings about returning home. Mary Kennedy and Joanna Burke fixed her clothing and redressed her in a fresh nightgown and after the men gathered around the bed again. Michael Cleary asked Bridget if she recognised the men in the room and one by one she told him that she did. Satisfied with the night's proceedings, the men stayed a while longer and then the four Kennedy brothers left to attend Michael Cleary's father's wake. Cleary himself did not go though he asked them to send a message to his mother that he had his wife back from the fairies. On the 15th, the morning after the terrible night of the fairy ritual in the Cleary's house, Michael Cleary went once again to visit Father Ryan. He asked him once again to visit his wife. He was sure that the house was full of evil spirits and he wanted to be cleansed with a mass. The priest followed him home on horseback and upon his arrival said mass and gave Bridget a holy communion. According to Father Ryan, Bridget appeared more nervous and excited but notwithstanding her wild and excited looks, her conversations were coherent and intelligent. As he left the Cleary's, Father Ryan asked Michael Cleary if he had been giving Bridget the doctor's medicine, to which he was told, in no uncertain terms, that the Cleary's had little faith in the doctor and that people had their own remedies for dealing with these situations. That evening saw more visitors to the Cleary household Local men Tom Smith and Davey Hogan, along with Joanna Burke, were over for the afternoon, and so, now with their physical condition slowly returning, Bridget got up and dressed for the first time in 11 days. That night, Joanna's brother Patrick, James, and William arrived back from Michael Cleary's father's wake and visited the Cleary's. The neighbours Smith and Hogan had left, but Joanna Burke, Patrick Boland, Mary Kennedy and four of her children and granddaughter all remained stuffed into the kitchen. They sat down a little before midnight to take tea which Joanna Burke had prepared. The men expressed their happiness to see Bridget up and dressed and as they drank tea Michael Cleary served Bridget three pieces of bread and jam. Bridget ate the first two however when she refused the third things took a dramatic shift. Michael Cleary threatened her again. He yelled at Bridget, exclaiming that if she would not eat it, he would put her down. He began repeating the same questions from the ritual, asking her if she was Bridget Boland. He threw her to the ground and he stuffed the bread into her mouth, commanding her to swallow it. Bridget whimpered in response, apparently telling her husband to give her a chance. In response, he stripped her clothing down to her chemise placed his knee on her chest and took a piece of wood from the fireplace, threatening Bridget with the red-hot embers and suggesting he would shove it down her throat. In his toing and throwing with the burning wood, embers fell upon Bridget and in a flash of flame, her chemise ignited. As she lay on the floor, Bridget's body burned. Michael Cleary stood back from the burning Bridget and picking up the paraffin lamp, he threw the flammable oil all over her body. Patrick and James Kennedy, who had been sleeping in another room, woke up and walked into the kitchen along with Mary Kennedy, who had also been asleep in another room. As they made their way into the kitchen, James Kennedy exclaimed to Michael Cleary, Don't burn your wife. She's not my wife. She's an old deceiver sent in place of my wife. She's after deceiving me for the last seven or eight days and deceiving the priest today too, but she won't deceive anyone anymore. As I begin it with her, I will finish it with her. You'll see see her go up the chimney. Cleary had locked the door to the house, and some of the men made to leave. Cleary took out a knife and told them that none would leave until he got his wife back. As the group removed themselves from the kitchen, leaving Michael Cleary throwing more lamp oil on his wife's burning body, they shut themselves in the bedrooms. Michael Cleary left, locking the door behind him, and upon returning around an hour later, enlisted Patrick Kennedy to help him to bury Bridget's body. The ordeal was over as far as he was concerned. He had burned the fairy from his household, tearing out the heart of the problem. All that was left for him to do now was to visit Kylan O'Grana Fairy Fort and wait for the return of his real wife riding a grey horse. If he cut her free from the saddle, he could, he told them, return home with his wife, and the problems were over. For the next two days and nights, Michael Cleary went with Jack Dunn to the ring fort to await his wife's return. Barbarism in Tipperary Horrible scene of superstition and barbary A sick woman tortured as a witch The sensation caused by the mysterious disappearance of a sick woman named Cleary has been heightened by the discovery of her dead body yesterday buried in a dyke, on an evicted farm in Drangham Police District, about a quarter of a mile from her own home. She was just a week missing, and the police and others were searching for her vainly all the time until yesterday, when a police constable found her body buried about two feet in the boggy bottom of the dyke, her only covering being a chemise and some bags. On turning the body, it was found that one side was dreadfully burned from the face down to the legs, The police took charge of the remains at once but left them, as found, in the custody of the special guard all night. After the discovery of the body, a woman named Burke, who had been caring for Mrs. Cleary while sick, was taken into custody by the police. In the days between Bridget's death and the discovery of her body, police had already rounded up and kept in custody 10 of the 11 that they would eventually hold. Joanna Burke had gone to the police though she had not told the full story, only that Bridget Cleary was missing. So too had William Simpson given a testimony to that which he had witnessed on the 14th of the brutal fairy ritual. Michael Cleary, Patrick Boland, Jack Dunn, Michael Patrick, James William and Mary Kennedy, William Ahern and Dennis Ganny were all taken into custody, charged with having ill-treated Bridget and causing her actual bodily harm. The 11th, Joanna Burke, completed the set shortly after the discovery of Bridget buried in the field. Before the body was discovered, the ten accused were taken to stand before the Magistrates' Court in Clonmel Town Hall. When invited to ask the inspector any questions related to their charge, Cleary only stated, All I have to say is that I would not ill-treat my wife. Mr. Casey, that is not a question, but a statement have you any question to put to the district's inspector? Cleary replied that he had not and was further understood to say that it was he who had gone for the man Dennis Ganny. Patrick Boland, father of Bridget Cleary, was next asked a similar question and he said, I don't know. I have nothing to say about my daughter. None of the others that took the stand felt they had anything to ask. Although Michael Kennedy did ask why he was detained, given that he had only spent 10 minutes in the house. I did not wish to do her any harm, he said. Dennis Ganny, however, was adamant that the affair had little to do with him at all. Did he see me? Does he say that I assisted in doing away with the woman? A statement from Michael Cleary was then read aloud at the court. I believe that the ill treatment which Bridget Cleary was subjected to was in administrating herbs prepared for her by Dennis Ganny and that it was by his instructions that she was ill-treated. Again, Gani objected. Did he hear me? Does he swear that I instructed the people to do so? What grounds has he for charging me? What grounds has he for believing that I gave instructions? When did he see or hear of me being there, or was I there at all? Despite his remonstrations, the application to hold all of the accused in custody until Bridget was found was successful. They all confessed only that Bridget was last seen on Friday night, strong and dressed before she went away. All the male prisoners were kept in a cell in Clonmel, whilst the female prisoners were sent by train to a woman's prison in Limerick. Following the discovery of Bridget's body, an inquest was held on Saturday the 23rd of March, whereby evidence was given from the police constable who found the body, along with Dr. Crean, who had visited Bridget during her illness. I was called to see the sick woman on the 11th instance. I was not able to go to see her until the 13th instance. I went to her residence on that morning. I found her simply suffering from nervous excitement. She was in bed. She had a slight inflammation of breathing tubes of the lungs or bronchitis. I could see nothing in her case that would cause death. I did not see the slightest danger. I prescribed and afterwards the same morning gave the medicine to her husband. I had no anxiety whatever about her case. I did not see her alive afterwards. Dr. Crean assisted Dr. Heffernan in the post-mortem examination of Bridget's body and both doctors gave evidence which included a long list of burns throughout the body. We believe she died from shock caused by the burns. We believe death resulted from them. No living person could exist from the severe burns. We should say death must have occurred very soon or immediately after the burns or in the process. A verdict was given that it was clear how Bridget had died, but how she had been burned was a matter for which court was yet to determine. The horrific story of the fairy ritual was still a secret from all but those present on the night of the 15th. During the early press reports following the discovery of Bridget Cleary's body, there were many headlines that ran the idea of Bridget having been burnt as a witch. It wasn't until the 30th of March, when the Express ran a story with the headline The Tipperary Fairies, that the beginnings of the extent of the true story began to inch out into the public. At first, many Irish living abroad were sceptical of the tone of the articles, which often presented the rural Irish as barbaric. This narrative naturally fed directly into the one that was pushed by the conservative British press, who promoted home rule and pushed back against the concept of an independent island. As the details leaked out, however, it became apparent that the truth was just as dark as the stories were making it out to be. In the course of my investigations into the burning of Bridget Cleary at Ballyvadley near Clonmel, the circumstances connected with which I detailed in my dispatch last night many extraordinary stories were brought to light, and some importance may be attached to them when viewed in connection with the witchcraft theory. That a belief in the existence of fairies still lingers among the inhabitants of the Clonine district is beyond doubt, and many people are to be found who give the most circumstantial accounts of strange doings ascribed to the little, red-coated gentry. Indeed, a belief in witchcraft is not by any means confined to this part of the country, nor for that matter to Ireland, Even in England, superstitious beliefs still linger in many country villages. In connection with the recent tragedy, one of the reports which I heard, but which at best I hesitated to give publicity to, was that on the night of Mrs Cleary's murder, a number of people, each armed with the black handled knife, assembled on the rath at the back of the house in the belief that the real Mrs Cleary would appear stripped down on the back of a grey horse, their intention being to cut her bonds with the knives, by which it was believed they would break the enchantment and set her free. Improbable as this may appear, it is only a sample of the many stories current in the neighbourhood. The story had truth to it too. Michael Cleary had assembled a group of his neighbours on the nights following the murder of his wife. He had asked to borrow his neighbour William Simpson's gun to threaten people with if they did not show up to go with himself and Jack Dunn to the Ringfort, though Simpson had thankfully denied him the use of the firearm. Instead, Simpson reported seeing the groups on the Monday and Tuesday evenings. And still, the story of fairy involvement took a while to filter out into the public at large, and for several more days, newspaper reports called the murder of Bridget Cleary the witchcraft case, with assorted headlines along the lines of the witch burning and the Irish witch case. A lot of the excitement that surrounded the case now lie directly at the prisoners in custody and little print was given to the funeral of Bridget Cleary which took place on the night of Wednesday the 27th of March. It was a sorry affair and was not only boycotted by the local community but held under the cover of darkness. Not one civilian attended the burial and the rites of sepulture were performed by four police constables. There was no hearse and the coffin was borne by a common car from Fettered. The significance of this will be understood when it is remembered that the Irish peasantry regard a funeral not only as an expression of respect for the deceased and of sympathy with the family, but as invested with a certain degree of sanctity. The fact is, however, that the people believe, or perhaps with a view to the defence of the prisoners, affect to believe, that the real Bridget Cleary will come back riding on a white horse sent by the fairies, and if they can succeed in cutting the reins of the horse, they will secure her. With this object, there are, it is stated, persons on the watch on the mountains, one of whom is specially provided with a sharp knife to cut the reins. Bridget Cleary was buried next to her mother at 10pm at night, with no one in attendance. There might be, perhaps, one other explanation somewhat more worldly for the boycott, that the Cleary's were on friendly terms with the emergency man neighbour would not have been something seen in an altogether shining light by the community. Either way, it was a sad bookend to the life of Bridget Cleary. On Monday, April the 1st, the magisterial hearing opened in the Clonmel Courthouse. The first witness to be called was the neighbour, William Simpson, who gave extended testimony as to all he had witnessed on the night on the 14th of the Fairy Doctor Ritual. When asked if any of the people present in the room at the time of the ritual offered any disapproval to the brutality that Michael Cleary was dishing out towards his wife, he replied confidently, No sir. Following Simpson, Father Ryan gave evidence, who told of how he had seen Michael Cleary in church on the morning following the murder of Bridget. He knelt near the altar and I saw that he was in an excited, nervous state and I asked him into the vestry. He was tearing his hair and behaving like a madman, and he said something about going to confession. He seemed in remorse for something he had done, and was calling out the holy name of God, and asking if he could ever be forgiven. Father Ryan did not offer to hear Michael Cleary's confession, as he thought he appeared in an improper state. And beginning to fear his mannerisms, he took him outside the church, where the pair met Michael Kennedy, who led Cleary away from the church. He also saw Jack Dunn that same morning. I was speaking to him in the chapel yard and I asked him what was the meaning of Cleary's state of mind and his excitement. His answer as well as I can remember was, they burned her to death last night and buried her and I have been asking them all morning to take her up and give her a proper Christian burial. That is the substance of what he said. I had no further conversation with him that I can remember. I think he said that three or four of them buried her. I was horror struck and I said to him, I remember saying, how could three or four of them go out of their minds simultaneously? Not thinking it was any idea they had about witchcraft, and I don't remember that there was any answer. I went to the police barrack after, and told acting Sergeant Egan that I thought Cleary was off his head. The following day, court resumed with evidence given by the neighbour Mary Simpson. Her evidence fell largely in line with her husband's evidence, though when asked who ordered Bridget to be taken to the fireplace on the 14th, she replied, Jack Dunn. When the district inspector stood to give evidence, a shovel was presented to the court found at the Cleary's house several days prior, and much to the amusement of the jam-packed courtroom, debate was had on whether or not the shovel smelt of oil or paraffin. Finally, it was decided that it indeed smelt as though someone with paraffin on their hands would have carried the shovel. Cleary's clothing was then presented to the court and oil stains were pointed out and the court then adjourned for two days until Thursday the 4th of April. Over the following days, the medical evidence was heard and on Friday the 5th of April, Dennis Ganny was discharged. On Saturday the 6th of April, statements were made to the magistrates from the defence. Jack Dunn made no short time in distancing himself from the whole affair, admitting to being present, but conveniently removing himself from any tales of fairies or suggestions for remedies. The day concluded with the magistrate's court decision on how to continue forward with each prisoner. There are no doubt different degrees of culpability in the part taken by each of the prisoners before us, but notwithstanding this difference, we are of the opinion that, There is a distinct question as to whether the occurrence of Friday night, the 15th, March last, was not a legal continuance of the very grievous torture inflicted on the deceased, Bridget Cleary, on the previous night. And therefore, we order the committal of trial to the next assizes to be held for the County Tipperary. The prisoners were shortly after removed to the jail under a heavy escort of constabulary. On Thursday, the 4th of July, Michael Cleary stood trial for murdering Bridget Cleary and he pleaded guilty of manslaughter, whilst the eight remaining prisoners, Patrick Boland, Mary Kennedy, Jack Dunn, William Ahern and Mary Kennedy's four sons were all to stand trial for unlawfully and maliciously wounding Bridget Cleary and on the second count of having committed actual bodily harm. All eight pleaded not guilty, the trial was brief and with much evidence previously heard during the magistrate's hearing duly repeated, the jury went out to find their verdict on the evening of Friday the 5th of July. After 40 minutes, they returned the verdict of guilty for all eight prisoners on the charges of wounding Bridget Cleary, but they recommended that Patrick Boland, Mary Kennedy and Michael Kennedy be treated with mercy. Patrick Kennedy and Jack Dunn were found equally guilty for their involvement, and Patrick was sentenced to five years' imprisonment. Whilst partly accounting for his age and partly accounting for his lack of involvement with concealing the body, Jack Dunn received three years. William and James Kennedy received 18 months' imprisonment each. Patrick Bolin received six months' imprisonment with hard labour, whilst Mary Kennedy was discharged without sentence, along with her daughter. The judge then turned to Michael Cleary expressing that his mind had slunk into gross darkness and that the remorse he would suffer for the remainder of his life would punish him infinitely more than the sentence which his lordship would be bound to pass upon him. The judge assured the court that he had judged the matter at hand entirely independent of the superstitions that surrounded the case. The short of the matter was that he burned his wife alive. Michael Cleary was sentenced to 20 years' imprisonment. Throughout the sentence hearing, Cleary was said to have wept bitterly. All prisoners were then led away from the courtroom under heavy escort to the county jail. Of his 20 years, Michael Cleary served only 15, and he was released on the 28th of April 1910. He boarded a ship to Montreal on the 30th of June and promptly disappeared from history. The murder of Bridget Cleary is first and foremost, once all of the superstition and folklore is stripped away, one of domestic violence. Bridget Cleary was a strong woman with a degree of independence. She had modernity on her side, a facet of the times that went against and threatened the societal importance of characters like Jack Dunn. Michael Cleary is a different figure. He was on the up, educated and skilled, as was his wife had the strains of the stigma of a childless marriage alongside other factors such as outside influence, his father's death and the rumours of his wife's infidelity finally caught up with him allowing him to unleash possibly years of resentment unchallenged under the guise of a patriarchal society. Or did he simply believe, along with all the others present that his wife had generally been taken by fairies? Whatever the answers are, they remain a mystery The only truth to the story of Bridget Cleary being that all present were likely guilty and innocent to differing degrees with no winners, whilst Bridget Cleary suffered the harshest of treatments and a tragic end to a life which held considerable promise. Like I said, that is a gritty one this week. We're going to have a quick bit of capitalism with some short ad breaks, And then I'm going to be back, but it won't be me by myself. Like I said at the start, this is going to be an episode with a guest. Boom. We're going to have Finn Dwyer on.
1: Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert, Dr. Heath Avery. Season one relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. As mentioned
0: at the start of the show, Dark Histories is an official affiliate with Audible, which is really great. I'm actually a member of Audible myself, so I'm really glad to bring in an advertiser that you know I actually do rate. For those that are not aware, Audible is an audiobook subscription service whereby you pay a monthly sub and you get a credit with each month to purchase an audiobook of your choice. When you cancel your subscription, you get to keep all your previously purchased books, which you can access across devices from Mac, Windows, Android and iOS, and they all stay synced up with one another. If this all sounds like something you might be interested in, hop over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can find a special offer. Sign up for a free month, including your first credit, to purchase an audiobook of your choice. If at the end of the month you decide that it's not for you, you can cancel, not pay a penny, and you get to keep the audiobook from your trial, so it's literally a win-win. Thanks very much for suffering through my spiel and Once again, if it does appeal, head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories, or you can find the link on the support page of darkhistories.com. Cheers. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool. But a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories patron. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes full back catalog of bonus episodes including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content you get access to all my research notes for each episode and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month so if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sell a listen Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So, yeah, I was very lucky to have this opportunity um, to welcome Finn onto the show. So, without further ado, I'm just going to crack on straight into it. This is the conversation I had with Finn concerning the Bridget Cleary case. So, with me today, I've got Finn Dwyer, historian, author and podcaster who writes and produces the Irish History podcast, Finn has a master's in archaeology, and he's written two books on Irish history, 1348, A Medieval Apocalypse, The Black Death in Ireland, and Life, Power and Conquest in Medieval Ireland, The Story of Brian Boru. Uh, Finn, welcome. It's great to have you, man. Um, is that pretty much
2: how you'd describe yourself? Is, is, is
0: that covered it? Or? Yeah, I
2: think so. Um, I guess the only other thing I'd probably add in is that I spent a lot of time on, I guess, what we'd call modern Ireland. So that's from the Great Famine through into the 20th century. So the Great Famine in the 1840s, all the way through to the War of Independence and the Civil War in the 1920s. Uh, so I have two interests, medieval history and kind of a modern history around the time of the Bridget Cleary uh, quote-unquote trial.
0: So so where does that stem from? Like the the, the kind of crossover there between like medieval and modern? Because I, actually I find myself quite similar, but I would, you know, I wonder about you how how you've come to that
2: I think I would have always been interested in modern history and I think particularly in Ireland modern history probably plays a uh, bigger role in day-to-day life maybe than in other countries that like there would be maybe um, a lot of towns would have a marking like when I was growing up there would have been events maybe to commemorate the 1798 rebellion just as an example and then later on I became more interested in medieval history but I guess that's the one that would have taken a bit of graft to develop an interest in because you don't encounter that on very much you have to go off and do research uh, to engage with medieval history whereas I think maybe modern history in Ireland there's a popular narrative that, at least way, that would pique an interest and then from there I would have pursued that um I guess so. there is a, there is quite a difference I think in how you get involved in, in in those quite disparate parts of history.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially with even modern history when even if you're only going back sort of like 1 200 years, you always feel like there's something that you can get a hold of yourself and and relate to. But when you get back to medieval history, it's almost like I mean, it is an entirely different world, isn't it, in a lot of respects. You it's really there's very little, or well, I find personally, there's very little you can actually get a grasp on and, and understand from like a relatable level.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think that is, I think a great starting point, certainly with medieval history, is that there's so much about that world that we just don't understand and can't understand because of the world that we live in and a lot of the premises that we uh, approach like from, say, a very basic thing like religion. Like, whereas... Nearly everyone in the uh, late Middle Ages uh, fervently believed in the ideas of religion. Um, they couldn't envisage the concept of a secular world, whereas we obviously, even if you are religious, will probably on some level understand the difference between the secular and the religious. That's just one example, but I, I think you're totally bang on there that like you can't, like approaching medieval history is like you really are. It's like looking on to. You know, that thing of, uh, uh, a that, that famous uh, quote, it's a distant shore, they do things differently there. And I think that's very true. Like there's only so much that we can really understand about that world.
0: That's, obviously that's what pulls you in as well, isn't it? It's just the fact that it is so like exotic and, I mean, exotic and is perhaps not the best word because a lot of it's quite bleak, but it is so different, isn't it? Isn't it's so it?
2: different. It's so, so different that you won't, You know, we live in times where the present day, what's making history at the moment is deeply troubling in terms of our futures and stuff like that, that sometimes medieval history can be attractive in that, that it's like so far removed and you're not going to have people talking about the, the concerns of someone in 1348 were very different from the concerns of someone in 2019. And I think that can be an attraction in it, you know. It's
0: definitely an escape, isn't it? Yeah.
2: Yeah, totally.
0: Totally. I was going to say that actually about the Irish history podcast is is that what I find is because I I don't have I mean I mean to say any grounding in Irish history would be putting it politely I you know I'm quite poorly versed in basically all history more or less to be honest apart from very modern history and uh, I find it really accessible for that reason the fact that it is such an escape that um, despite the fact I have very little no- like foreknowledge I can listen to your episodes and and find it easily accessible probably because of that reason
2: yeah i think like there's a there's a uh I, I think that draws us all to like something that is very removed from our lives and i suppose some people read sci-fi some people read game of thrones or whatever and then other people <laughs> uh, <laughs> engage with medieval history maybe so
0: to so talk about bridget cleary because obviously that's the episode today we I'm just going to chat the big question out, just to get it out of the way. I, I'm, I'm fairly sure I know the answer straight away without even needing to ask, but I assume you don't really think she was taken away by the fairies, right?
2: No, no, I don't think Bridget Cleary was taken away by the fairies.
0: Um. <laughs> but, you know, we might as well get get let people know where we stand <laughs> on this one. So the story was reported, and when it, when it broke, it, it was reported on globally. And, yeah, many of the Irish people at the time... They sort of viewed it with an eye of suspicion uh, because, if obviously the Tory press were promoting like the home rule, and there was a lot of sort of bias and racism against the Irish there, and I, I noticed like, that the very first headline from the Daily Express was, um, I think, barbarism in Tipperary: a sick woman tortured as a witch. Which is, the, you know, there's no beating about the bush with that headline, is there? It's, it's very.
2: Yeah, uh, I think it's quite a, a complex picture in the world where the story of Bridget Cleary emerges from. And it's very much to do with some of the things that you're touching on there. Um, But Ireland, I guess, at the time, it's very difficult to say this is what Ireland looked like in the 1890s. There's very different parts of the country in terms of Ireland is a relatively small island But if you moved around, you would encounter very, very different uh, societies almost, or communities, Um, much more so than if you travelled around Ireland today. Um, For example, I'm making a podcast at the moment about a woman called Peg Sears, who would have been a contemporary of Bridget Cleary. They never knew each other or anything like that, but they lived around the same time. Um, Peg Sears was born in 1872, but she was born in a place called Dunquin in West Kerry. And if you'd gone to Dunquin. In the 1890s, it was an extraordinarily remote place where people only spoke Irish um, and understood the world in 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 very very different terms than say someone in Dublin. So if you'd gone to Dublin, the differences between Dublin and London might be far less than Dublin and the west of Ireland. Obviously, in terms of politics, there are. But even politically, while there most people or the 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 most popular are well understood. And when I say popular, I I just mean a well-known narrative of Irish history in the late 19th and early 20th century would focus on the nationalist and republican movement that would go on to achieve independence in the 1920s or partial independence in the 1920s. There was a significant minority of unionists in the country. These are people who wanted to remain part of the United Kingdom. Essentially, I suppose that's why we had a war over, because if everyone wanted to leave, there wouldn't have been a war. I guess what I'm getting at, though, in terms of the story of Bridget Cleary, it's not just in places like London. In Dublin, you would have had people looking down on rural Tipperary. And I guess if we looked at West Kerry and the really remote communities out on the West Coast, somewhere like Tipperary maybe is in the middle. It's a rural part of the country, but Bridget Cleary does not live in a really remote community. It is, say, rural Tipperary, And there had been a narrative about rural Ireland in the British press um, that, and you would find it in some Dublin newspapers as well, about people being barbarous. The idea that these people are almost savage and that they have to be tamed. And obviously this is part of the narrative of empire that people need to be tamed and that it's people coming from England essentially and maybe Scotland and Wales, generally speaking, England will need to come in and show these people, the path to civilization. And that's what these headlines draw on. And these aren't the first time. This had existed right through the 19th century and long before it had really come to prominence, say, particularly during the famine and things like that, where this idea that Ireland is problematic and the problems are about. It's not just about Bridget Cleary. It's about broader Irish society. But I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it's a much more complex thing than saying Irish society is this or that. Irish society was in Dublin was like very cosmopolitan. Uh, Dublin was a large city. It was a bit it was in decline at the time, but um, that's a, a separate issue. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there, if you'd gone to Dublin, gone to Tipperary, and gone to Kerry, you would have found very different Ireland as such. Right.
0: Her particular town was quite small, wasn't it? But she had towns around her that were quite. Large. Like it was sandwiched in between like a couple of quite large
2: Yeah, exactly. Ballyvadley where uh uh Bridget Cleary was from is rural, but like you say, there are very large, well not very large, there are substantial towns in the surrounding area. Waterford City, which would have had a population of tens of thousands, isn't that far away. Carrigan Shore is very nearby, Caircashel. Substantial towns where like your population of several thousand people are all very close to it. And on top of this, you have um, Tipperary in general is a relatively densely populated part of the country. Um, Not as densely populated as it would have been before the famine, but still, you're talking about a population of several hundred thousand people living in the county. Now, it's a very big county, but you're not... That said, I suppose, Bridget Bridgetpere does live in a rural community and no different to anywhere in England, Wales, Scotland, or wherever your listeners are, are tuning into this from, you can have I guess rural communities that are close to big enough urban areas that have those kind of community links and that's very important in this story. These tight knit communities and people who transgress, uh perceived um, I perceived norms might, might be a better way of saying it, um. But yeah, it is a rural area, but it's not far from substantial enough towns. That's a bit
0: like, and it reminds me of when I did the um, Spring Hill Jack episode and I was looking up in the papers then. Oh, yeah, yeah. And even the difference between like central London and the suburbs of London was ginormous in terms of their belief systems and things like that. And and these are towns on the, just on the periphery of, you know, sort of central London. And they had completely different, you know, almost sort of generations apart belief systems which was I found quite fascinating. Was something I wasn't really aware of, but um, but it just sort of plays into that, doesn't it? That you can have these kind of rural um, areas that are sort of have these uh, elder belief systems right nestled right alongside quite modern cosmopolitan cities.
2: I think what a lot of it about what a lot of this is about is where you've got this collision going on in the late nineteenth century about two different ways the world can be understood, and. Before the development of science, and now when I say the development of science, I mean kind of maybe in the later 19th century where science is really starting to change the world. I don't mean like people like Isaac Newton centuries beforehand kind of theorising about this. By the late 19th century, science is really starting to have an impact on how people not only uh, understand the world, but how they live their daily lives. And then this is coming into a set of beliefs that to us today sound absolutely crazy. But if you look at it in the understanding of, say, people who lived in rural Ireland in the early 19th century and to an extent in the mid-19th century, where there was very little medicine, the government did almost nothing for the people, the poor could not get access to medical care. So people who might have a knowledge of folk remedies were obviously very important. Now, those folk remedies can be really useful in some cases or they may be sorry effective as uh, rather than useful in some cases and in some cases uh, can have the exact opposite effect of maybe what you would want
0: that sort of segues into the fairy doctors and, and and what i've sort of got got the picture that fairy doctors were in a sense like a balance with witches and they were almost like the yin to the witch's yang they were they were inseparable you can't have one without the other like like the world of fairies sort of runs alongside, parallel almost, with the world of witches. And, and witches were the kind of evil, and the fairies were essentially quite good. Would you say that that kind of sits right?
2: Yeah, so maybe it might be worth explaining to people if who are listening to this outside of Ireland that... The concept of what Bridget Cleary was called as, as of a witch is very, very different to the idea of women who would have been accused of witchcraft in places like Salem or Scotland in the 1590s or England during the English Civil War. The kind of logic or whole process behind why these people should be charged or accused of witchcraft or called a witch, even though Bridget Cleary was somewhat different, Come from very different places. So in Ireland, it stretches way back into pre-Christian ideas on the island that would have existed uh, long before Christianity ever arrived in Ireland in the fifth century. Whereas trials like Salem have their roots in a change in kind of in Christian teachings in the early fourteenth century, and they have very very different origins. Now we can say that maybe um, misogyny obviously is a, there's a lot of common threads between the two but the logic or that's a really odd word to use in a case like this but the thought process behind them has very different roots <laughs> um the witch doc or the witch doctor the fairy doctor which in a way kind of maybe a, a witch doctor is a good analogy was a very important person maybe in a community like i mentioned in a community that doesn't have access to medicine in the way we would or even in the 19th century can't access the medicate the medicine or medical treatment that's available because they're too poor a fairy doctor is an important person because they can provide some remedies perhaps some of these may work probably depends on the fairy doctor depends um from place to place H- how you know some of these fairy doctors might be in a way similar to what we would call um herbal re- uh, herbal um practitioners are, you know people who would um, provide herbal remedies today uh, and some of them are just total quacks who haven't a clue what they're talking about and probably use the position as a position of power in the community. They also though do explain the difficulties and harshness of the world in the late 19th or in the 19th century and before so they can explain things if people disappear they can explain mental illness things like that that people can't understand but they can say, oh, well, the fairies have you know, taken your child and they've put a changeling in its place. Or that Bridget Cleary, that's not Bridget Cleary because the real Bridget Cleary isn't like that. Now, we don't know what's wrong with her, so we're going to say that the fairies have taken her. How much people believe this is very difficult to know. Some people clearly do because they clearly, they killed a woman over this, in, in this case. Other people, it's probably a bit of, I'll give you a good example. When I was a child, this is in the 1980s, uh, I had warts on my hands and I was brought to a woman who kind of said a prayer over them and then rubbed bacon fat onto them, right? Now, I don't know how much, like my family were Catholics um, and that's clearly, there's a bit of Catholicism thrown in there and a bit of much older ideas. That woman wasn't a fairy doctor, but she was a faith healer of some kind, I guess. I'm not sure how much my family really believed in that, but it would have been, sure, it's worth a shot. And I think it would have been the same for some people in the late 19th century. It's like, yeah, I'll try some of this. And it should be said, most of the activities of fairy doctors don't end up in Mm. death. They don't end up in harm. They're probably harmless in pretty much every way that they don't make you better. They don't probably don't make you worse. might taste a bit unpleasant and then some of them can be lethal. I would say like some of these people who do this though are quacks. They have no idea of what they're talking about, but it is a a powerful position in some communities. When I was reading about them, I was reading
0: that, you know, essentially they were sort of charity and they they never accepted money because if they did, that would actually lessen the charm and they offered advice to the community and... I think uh, I read, uh, William Yates wrote um, that it's never worse than mischievous. They said that, you know, um, and no one's ever seen them in a rage nor heard any angry voice from their lips. So it's like you get this kind of picture of a quite benevolent, sort of helpful member of the community that's probably quite important and serves a really kind of important purpose um, in that community
2: that that's for good, essentially. For sure. And some of these people were probably quite skilled. I'm sure in some communities... Mm. Some of these people who would have been taught by their parents or, you know, some other person in the community, you know, they would have known certain herbal remedies, like it's not going to fix or cure cancer or something. But, you know, certain ailments it will help with, you know, maybe with skin diseases, things like that. Um, So there are some of these people, like you say, are they're probably quite positive, important people. But at the late 19th century, medicine and public medicine is starting to emerge People can afford doctors, like in, in the case of Bridget Curie, there's a doctor involved, whereas if you look at the statistics before the famine, say, for example, you can have in some cases up to ten, twenty thousand 20,000 people dependent on one doctor and they can't afford it. At the end of the 19th century, these ideas are really now coming under threat and it's not just from science, it's also from the Catholic Church. And the history of the Catholic Church is actually important in this. Um, prior to the Great Famine of the 1840s, and I, I refer a lot to the Great Famine, and because it's probably the most important event in modern Irish history for, particularly for people like Bridget Cleary and that generation who grew up in the 1890s, this event stalked the society they lived in. Emigration was, Ireland was hemorrhaging people at this time, and it would have been a very important event, but also it was a very important event because of its, uh, the relationship of the Catholic Church to it. Previous to the famine, which began in 1845, um, the Catholic Church was not a very, well, it was an influential organisation in that 80% of the country would have identified as Catholic. The influence, though, of the Catholic hierarchy over the people was certainly less than it is uh, today. Or sorry, less than it would have been in the 1950s. Then in 1849, a man comes back, John Paul Cullen, comes back from Rome and totally reorganises the Catholic Church. And over the following 50 years, they extended this grip over society in Ireland. They get control of education. they had already a bit of this before the famine, but they were able to expand on it. Um, and they become the power of Irish society after the famine. They also are able to build on uh, survivor guilt and things like that that exist among the, the population. And I'm actually going somewhere with all of this. I'm actually just on a big roundabout. They were opposed to people like fairy doctors because, for obvious reasons, they're Belief system is a one that predates Christianity. It's a really old system. It's not. They're also, to an extent, the 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 Catholic priest is the uh, community leader as well as the spiritual leader as well as often in some communities the political leader, and the fairy doctor is a bit of a threat to this. So on all sides around the time Bridget Cleary. Uh, the Bridget Cleary case emerges, is that you have these fairy doctors who are under threat um, from all sides. Um, now, that's just a general picture. Bridget Cleary, her staff, is a threat probably, maybe in this case, to the local fairy doctor because she's a powerful woman. And I think that's a very important part of this. And in a way, she probably res- represents modernity on some level. She started a business, um, what probably singled them out, her and her husband, is also the fact that they don't have children, which is quite unusual. Um, you know, so there's a couple of things that separate them apart. And maybe how conscious the fairy doctor is of these things, we will never obviously know. But there are things we can hypothesize that he may well have felt this woman as a major threat to him.
0: There's a couple of things in there that I, I would like to see get into it So we'll deal with the kind of easier sort of more generalized question first if that's all right if these beliefs were sort of under attack throughout sort of the church and modernization sort of attacking it from both sides um how do you think it persisted so well like do you think it's just the, the just the fact that it was such an old belief that it's that the, these kind of folk beliefs kind of held sway still because that, that i mean that's an incredible feat of survival in a sense
2: yeah like I think like these old habits die hard and as I said I was taken to someone in the 1980s who on some level played the role of a fairy doctor like it's it's a different that woman would not have believed in the fairies but there are overlaps is what I'm saying so like those traditions and they still haven't completely died out. They play a very minor 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 role, and I'm sure there's similar superstitions in parts of Britain that um play a similar role like I wouldn't be well versed in like the kind of folk traditions in England, but I'm sure or britain um but I'm sure there are some
0: you still see it with like folk revivals as well, don't you? I mean even now you know this sort of yeah. modern spiritualism is often like just sort of re sort of formatted old beliefs you know to that, that
2: it is and even like you know you can see it like there was certainly a resurgence in you see it around some of the new age movements mm. um where like people would return to places like stonehenge invoking older ideas maybe what's a bit different though and what we're talking about is there is actually a direct continuity over they're not reinventing and i like got i have i wouldn't in any way disparage people who take those ideas today um it's as valid as any other, but maybe it is a bit different in the nineteenth century in these communities where you're talking about ideas that there have probably been practising, on one level or another, with direct continuity back into the Iron Age.
0: And that that sort of answers the question, right? Does it? Because you have that direct continuity, in it, and in a sense, that's that's validation in and of itself, isn't it? It's it's
2: yeah, it is. like I think that is it, and like you know, it reinforces the belief. Like we talk about the power of Christianity, maybe in Ireland, just because it has existed for so long. Well, we're talking about something here that existed maybe a thousand years before Christianity came to Ireland, yeah. you know, and it was never eradicated. There's this idea that Ireland became a really Christian country. It didn't. It adopted a lot of these ideas and merged them with existing Christian ideas, you know?
0: Yeah, sure. Now, I suppose we have to sort of broach the characters in the story. And yeah. it, we've got kind of the idea of this fairy as being an important member of the community and probably quite um, positive,
2: just that there's a fairy doctor in this story he clearly didn't know what he was doing anyway
0: yeah that's that's Dennis Ganny is it was the doctor yeah. right yeah
2: and i think you can say that he doesn't know what like he's not
0: like like was he a bit of a chancer?
2: i, I don't know like I, I would just be slow maybe it's just because of what actually lead, what, what his actions lead to um and maybe like we could say that he didn't know like we don't, there's so much about this case we don't fully understand um but yeah Dennis Ganny is not the the most evil person in this case, or evil is just, is not a great word to use when you're analysing things, but like there's a much darker figure, I think, in all this. That has to be Jack Dunn, right? Yeah. Like- he,
0: he's that because that's sort of something that I really wanted to sort of ask you about was the idea that if these kind of fairies were, for the most part, coming from a good place, where, how the hell does Jack Dunn twist it this way? Because he's clearly putting a lot of his own personal beliefs into this.
2: I think with someone like Jack Dunn there's we can hypothesize obviously that's what we're going to have to do. But, you know there are other things we talked a lot about the kind of supernatural beliefs and they're important in this case because obviously you need them around these have to exist otherwise Michael Theory wouldn't have done what he did. Mm. Um, there are other things though, that are really important and I think misogyny and sexism are a very important part of this case because Bridget Cleary is an unusual woman in that she's powerful and like she has she's seen in that community as powerful. Um, the also the fact that they don't have children and this is not just in Ireland or not just the thing about the nineteenth century. Women who don't have children have often been we even see it today. Yeah, this kind of questioning sure. mm. questioning of a woman who doesn't have, for one reason or another decides not to have kids. Um, yes, yeah, and um, I think with Jack Dunn, you have to ask these. Again, you know, he may also, he's an older man in this story of, and maybe feels threatened by the world changing around him. And there's no doubt the world is changing around him. Like, and the world had changed enormously in Ireland in the five decades after the famine, That the four or five decades that lead up to this event. Like, you know, there's probably, a I think, a common misconception out there both in Ireland and further afield, that kind of Irish society in the 19th century is this stayed unchanging place. And it's not. There's a lot going on in these communities. And as I say, like things like science is not just a theory. It's starting to change the world through technology. And even, for example, uh, Bridget Cleary had a sewing machine. And that's one example of this. But I think people like um, Jack Dunn are probably people feeling their power being stripped away, sure, bit by bit. And all I'm saying, I'm not saying that he didn't believe in the other things. I think the, these these are aspects of this case too. You know, yeah, for sure. Like because he definitely comes across as a very sinister force. You do wonder, like obviously, Cleary himself is a very sinister individual in the story as well. But you do get the impression maybe he's being wound up to an extent.
0: That that's what I felt a lot was that, like like Michael Cleary's. It's, I'm not. I don't want to. I'm not even close to saying that he's an innocent figure in this like of course not but but i do feel like jack dunn was he was doing a lot to steer him in directions that he wanted him
2: you definitely get that impression
0: he had a lot of influence i would say or it
2: feels like that yeah um and you know it is this thing that like we don't want to absolve clearly for the actions he took yeah but Dunn certainly And after the fact as well, like they've killed a woman now. So it's not like, you know, they've done this horrific deed and done still plays a role at that point, you know, it's, it's. Yeah. And that's something that like, you know, he helps, like they go off to a ring fort and like wait for like, um, Bridgetier to arrive back. And it's, you know, you're, you're looking at this going like, what's wrong with you at this point?
0: Yes. Yes. That, I found that really strange.
2: Yeah, because like, you've moved beyond, like, folk remedies. Yes, yeah. You know, at that stage where you're going to... There beliefs there that, like, I don't... I think very, very... You, I would say even in the 1890s, you would have been hard-pressed to find people in Ireland that would have believed in um, that kind of thing.
0: You know, because it's... A woman coming back on a grey horse at, at midnight or... Yeah, after you've just watched her burn to death.
2: Yeah. And whether it's some rationalisation of the process, whether it's, you know, based on other things they do believe in, but, you know, at this point you kind of are wondering what's going through. But yeah, Dunn definitely comes across at this point as a very... You wonder does he relish some of the violence and some of the... Yes, yeah. You know, because it's a very violent uh, lead-up to the actual burning. Extremely violent. And that is the thing about Cleary where we're talking about him. He treats Bridget Cleary extremely violently in those hours in the lead-up to that. Yeah, and. Yeah. I think it's also the previous day as well. But that is an important thing, I suppose, to remember in all this as well, that it's not like a, a once-off where he loses the head. It's a prolonged event that goes on. And maybe Cleary is violent, Cleary is all these things. But I guess what we're trying to do is maybe more bring this figure of Jack Dunn into this rather than replace uh, Michael Cleary with it.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting part of it, though, is that Uh, Michael Cleary and Bridget, their, their relationship was said to be relatively sort of fine. But it seems to me like the ritual was extremely violent, like you say. And it makes me wonder how much he'd lost the plot entirely and was just sort of taking out a lot of darkness on that ritual. Or if it was a prolonged thing, had he been sort of a violent man towards his wife before that, that we just hadn't known? Because... Like you say, times were very different and, and you know, people sort of turned a blind eye to a black guy here
2: or there. That, that, I think that's a, a really pertinent point because several people see him attack Bridget Cleary when she's sick. Like there's several people in the house at that point mm. um, and no one actually goes and intervenes or I think... No one seems to be surprised by it, right? Yeah, that's the thing. Some of the women say something along the line like try and talk him down from it but there doesn't seem to be this thing of like, What on earth are you doing? So obviously, to an extent, and and it's an important part to remember in this, in rural Ireland and in large parts, not just rural Ireland, engagement with the police at all was not, uh, was seriously frowned upon under any circumstances. Right. And this has, like... The British uh, Army, which would have had garrisons all across the country, and then the Royal Irish Constabulary were seen by large amounts of the population as occupying forces and just engagement with them never ended up in a good place. So you just said nothing. So, you know, a lot of people would have probably held back. Like I made a podcast about a very brutal murder that took place in a place called uh, Mam Drasna in 1882. And this is just an example of this where an entire family were really brutally killed Their neighbours either did it or certainly have to have known something about it. And no one, not only would tell the police anything about it, but they wouldn't even go into the house to help them. Um, And this, that just touches on, you know, finding out evidence in the um, late 19th century in rural communities in Ireland was very, very difficult. Um, There was a strong... Distrust of the authorities and there had been like large scale social conflict um, over the previous 20 years over land rights in Ireland as well. So I'm not familiar whether there was tensions in and around that specific townland but it could well have been the case as well. I guess what I'm getting at is that there could have been violence um, in that area and Michael Cleary could have been violent to Bridget Cleary um, because there is lots of conflicting rumours as well that kind of come out or that she was having an affair, that he was having an affair, that they were happy enough. You know, someone's lying there that they can't all be true.
0: Yes, for sure. Yeah.
2: But also there would have been that thing of like, and you still see it today, like a a man and or, um, you know, married couple's business is their own business and you shouldn't intervene, even if, you know, someone is really violently attacking another person. And that you still hear people talking that kind of, Stuff today, absolutely, um, yeah, and that would have been quite strong in the 19th in the 19th century as well, so I guess what I'm saying is that yeah, maybe it was that this was just the end point of a prolonged period where Bridget Cleary had been under attack, obviously the only person who could answer this is Bridget herself, and obviously she was never able to do that um, It's very hard because everything is written from the end point of her death, yes, you know yeah. no, no one wrote her life a year beforehand and maybe the image of Bridget Cleary is a bit different and is shaded by how she died um, and I guess yeah, in all these things I guess it, it's always good to try and come back to her story because she's the one who died you know as opposed to or was murdered um, as opposed to him who and what he did That is definitely
0: one of those things that you have to be careful of with these cases like all of these sort of older cases where someone's died in quite a, a violent or tragic way is you, you always have to bear in mind that it's written after the, like after the point, so there's always going to be that coloration of people's reporting about the case or speaking even of the case because you they're always going to have that knowledge that they're talking about someone that has recently died. Therefore, that's generally going to color what they say about them, which so is always quite an interesting factor. It's almost like you have to read yeah. between the lines quite often, don't you, to sort of yeah kind of seek the truth out of what they're real, really trying to say. Yeah. Again, like there's a couple of branches there that I would quite like to sort of talk about. But firstly, like um, Michael Clue's father died like on the day that the kind of attack happened. And do you think that that played any role? Or do you, like, because do, if he'd been like sort of violent or if he'd had these kind of certain feelings towards his wife that were perhaps not altogether great which is something I'll I'll come back to later. But if that was the case, do you think like his father's death could have been a tipping point at all? To like, it's all sort of guesswork, isn't it? But
2: yeah, I guess it is that thing, isn't it? That like his father's death, like obviously his father's death must have affected the guy uh, that said how many people's fathers died in Ireland on that day and didn't respond like this, you know? So yes, yeah. That kind of feeds back into pre what we we're talking about previously is how violent was he before this, and that's something I guess we'll never know. There is, I think there there is evidence that he probably hadn't slept a lot. Like, and again, mm. these aren't excuses, because as I say, there's thousands of people who probably hadn't slept that well the previous night or all across Ireland.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you, you know, definitely not trying to excuse him.
2: Oh, no, I know, yeah. I, I guess what I think it is that there's something underlying this and it does come back you have to wonder is this a violent is there you know you have to wonder like they're married i think it's eight years is it when this happened several years yeah i think it was it was and that they can go from that the abuse in the relationship can go from supposedly zero to him burning her alive in the space of 24 hours or whatever 36 hours maybe her i would find that hard to believe that you know there wasn't a build-up as you say
0: I found his sort of descent quite extreme, you know, the space of like uh, less than a week he went from being supposedly, you know, a a relatively normal sort of husband and wife that were getting on to suddenly burning her alive. Like you say, I mean, that's really extreme. It's a huge drop off. And I I just found that quite fascinating. And I wondered, I, I think he was already along quite far down that path. Yeah. Uh, he was already kind of influenced quite heavily by Dunn and things like that. But I just wonder how much of that played into it to sort of maybe like snap, you know, maybe it was the final straw that kind of snapped it and he just lost it after that or... But yeah, I I mean, it's like I say, it's difficult to talk about these things. You you want to always come back and say, I'm not trying to excuse him. I'm more just trying to find out the whys of of what... Yeah, of course. Because something is so extreme like this, you always... Or well, I always find myself questioning, like, okay, so what drove this person to do this? Because we're all just humans in the end of the day. So how is he so different to something that I could conceivably see myself doing? Like, it's you always that question of, like, okay, how does someone get that extreme? You know, mm. f- from probably who, someone who was probably
2: a normal guy for most of his life. I guess it is I thing. Like, it's it, it, it's one of those. Age-old questions, because you can look around today, and I think we still struggle to understand how, if we want to, a better term, but man's inhumanity humanity demand. But like we still mm-hmm. look around the world today and struggle. And I think, for me anyway, from my perspective, I, I think it was probably more important or more instructive is the kind of broader societal things that, that the world that he's operating in. That if he is this troubled person, why does he do this? that like there are things like we've touched on them, like the misogyny and the sexism that's probably been injected into the situation on a greater level by this guy, Jack Dunn. But that these are the things drive, because why didn't he, for example, attack another man? Or why didn't he, you know, there's, because at any point in, 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 in this story, there's probably thousands of options to take and he takes this one. I think that's what we have to ask. Yeah. Rather than, for me, I just don't think we can answer what drove him. Like why? Because um, we still struggle to do it with the people who are alive today. Um, but I do think we can look at this at this society that he existed in. Yeah. The fact that he does some of that violence in the house and other people just sit on and there may be like a bit going, oh, well, I wouldn't do that. But whereas today you'd hope someone to go, okay, this is going to stop now and I'm going to do anything I can to stop this out.
0: Yeah. So we we touched upon it a little bit earlier about how Bridget was a successful woman and quite powerful and didn't have children and was seen quite suspiciously. So when she died, her funeral was boycotted, wasn't it? No one turned up.
2: Um Yeah, it's really tragic. Actually there's I think
0: there's like four or five people on yeah, and they were all policemen, I think, as well, weren't they?
2: So Yeah, I think so, yeah.
0: Um, I mean her entire family was essentially arrested. So
2: But even aside from that you think even if our immediate family can't go, that your community would turn out because funerals in late 19th century Ireland are a very important event, a very important social event. Like, it's, Yeah. And um, they occupy kind of an unusual position that you have awake, but that it's a bit of a party to an extent. And there's certainly not these like solemn events that maybe Victorian funerals in England would have been. yeah. Yeah. around this time um, and that she's denied this and that's a big posthumous judgment by the community on her you know it's like we're going to deny this to you this like last hurrah if you want to look at it really bluntly like yeah that we give to people of our own who die. this is we gather we celebrate them and we're gonna not turn up and part of this like you know the reasons for people doing this are so complex
0: like there was rumors that she was having an affair with the neighbor simpson Mm. and he was an emergency man right and essentially they were almost to say shunned is is the is too small of a term like and anyone associated with them were equally ostracized by communities and I wondered if that played any part of it, like if people saw that, because even if you believe the rumor or not that she was having an affair, that's almost irrelevant. It's like the rumor persisted; therefore, that was the important it, it, fact.
2: She wasn't boycotted before she died, though. Was she not? Because that's something that I there's what, not like there's not this like to an extent they boycotted her funeral because everyone would have known that, like. Because boycotting in Ireland, that's where the term comes from, from a campaign against a landlord called, or a, land, uh, a guy who's, uh, anyway, a landlord for one for a better term, uh, called Charles Boycott, who was boycotted by his tenants, but they were pretty full on events in Ireland in the late 19th century. No one would talk to you. No one would sell you anything. People would hiss at you yeah. as you walk down the street, turn away from you. Like, it's not something that you wouldn't have been aware of. Bridget Cleary. And her husband would have come under huge pressure. Like there's no way, like there's people in the house. Dennis Ghani it, will engage with him. Uh, Jack Dunn engages with them. This is not, I think probably what's more likely at play, one, this whole issue of how she died. That's like, you know, people are still superstitious at the time. You throw in a really unhealthy smothering of like sexism on top of that. And the way women are understood is like, sinful all the rest of us mm. there's just this like i suppose for want of a better term a toxic atmosphere around this funeral that no one wants to be there and it's like like people probably superstitious people would have felt that you know going there was nothing good to be gained out of that, out of that funeral you know yeah and I, just the fact that her husband is in prison for doing us, yeah just it you know, I'd say there's a, like, um, there's a lot of different reasons why people didn't go to that funeral. Some people probably believed that she was a changing, like that she's accused of. that. Sh- that's not actually Bridget Cleary. Some probably did. A lot of people who didn't go, didn't go for other reasons. There's also a collective. Community is a very important and powerful force. And certainly this is the case in late 19th century Ireland. And if it was deemed that you shouldn't go to that, no one would have wanted to have stood out from the crowd and attended that, you know.
0: Yeah. So that because that's what sort of led me to ask this question was that when I was reading up, because again, like with all topics in dark Issues... I I, I almost never know anything beforehand. Um, and I was reading up about these emergency men and the concept behind them, and and there's this idea that they were in, so shunned to the point where children, like entire schools, were emptied of children if an emergency man's children went to that school. And things like this, um, and so that made me wonder that if the Clearys were seem to be getting on with Simpson, the neighbour, I, I wondered how much of that meant that they would themselves be, in, to some degree, ostracised by the society, and if that didn't then play into almost like a resentment from Michael Cleary towards his wife for having brought this upon the family, like this because of the rumour, and again it leads to misogyny because. It's not her fault that the rumour was there, but the rumour was there, and did he hold any resentment towards her for that rumour because he was perhaps getting trouble because she was rumoured to be having this affair? And not only was it an affair, but it was an affair with a member of society who you probably didn't want to even be seen talking to, let alone sleeping with.
2: Just around that general thing, you can say that she was a threat to him might be a way of... of, uh... Certainly, I think what we could say is that it doesn't matter whether she's having the affair or not, because I say well, that's a very difficult thing to pin down. Yeah. But Bridget in general undermined his position in, say, a patriarchal society. The fact that she works, the fact that she doesn't have children, which is a crazy thing in, in many ways, to think, because we don't know why they didn't have children. Maybe he wasn't, maybe she wasn't, whatever. Um, but she undermines his role or the way a successful man would have been viewed and understood in Ireland at the time. And yet I can see how that would have um, fueled his ferocity in that because you can see uh, similar stuff in the world today. You know, again, like you, know, you don't have to look too far to find parallels to this, how uh, people under threat or people who feel threatened in these situations can lash out, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, we can certainly say there's a lot there to provide theories as to why he may have acted in that way, because he may have actually been deeply resentful towards mm. her. I suppose
0: at the end of the day, it, it, because we can only really uh, sort of make guesses at all of that. But at the end of the day, it all sort of almost every road leads back to this kind of misogynistic uh, character in Dunn and Cleary, doesn't it? In the sense
2: that they, they, yeah. There's this nexus that kind of whatever it is that comes together with the two of them, whoever is the driving force, whoever, you know, but there is this between the two of them, we can certainly say there's something and, you know, because we can go, why doesn't this happen elsewhere? And why doesn't it happen to other people? Why is this individual in particular singled out for this? And then, you know, you have to look at who is on the receiving end and in the general sweep of history, who's on the receiving end of generally kind of supernatural accusations or accusations around the supernatural Overwhelmingly, whether it's seventy, eighty percent of people executed or killed for this reason over the last five hundred years have been women. Um, yeah, uh, you know, so all that kind of violence tends to be gendered anyway. Like you know,
0: yeah, I mean, that just sort of plays into the kind of misogyny of the time, doesn't it? I mean, the times in general were hugely patriarchal and misogynistic, and it's it's like a theme we see throughout. Well, even till today. <laughs> Just as you
2: you might say. Yeah, I think it is. I think you get a pushback to like, that's probably the big difference. Whereas at the turn of the 20th century, you start to get, like you have the emergence of women's movements on various different fronts. But like women are struggling to get the vote at this point. Like it's only World War One that really sees women move into the workplace in a really, I suppose, organised fashion. And even at that, this is resisted. Um, and certainly at the end of the war, there is an attempt to push them back out again. With the vote, again, the same thing happens. Women do get the vote, but there's lots of things done to try and mitigate against that to make it difficult for women to vote. Like in Ireland then, when women get the vote, and Ireland elects the first female MP in Countess Markievicz. Um But when Ireland, and that's like she's a Republican, so she stands for Sinn Féin. And she won't take her seat because no Sinn Féin MP uh, will take their seats in Westminster. Um, But within a couple of years, you see conservatism push back against that. So after independence, women are pushed out of the public sphere. Um, I guess we're moving on to a slightly different topic there. But you can see there is always, I guess what I'm saying is that there's that, even though women are, are making progress around this time they're being pushed back and I suppose in a way you could see like you know you could look at the Bridget Cleary story in that context of a woman who is like you know in a rural community is making great strides maybe that her mother or certainly grandmother wouldn't have been able to envisage for herself Mm. but this is pushed back in the most brutal and vicious of terms you could look at it that's not the only part of this story there's like three or four different things going on and I think that's what makes this story is that there's these three or four things and the thing that draws maybe most attention to it is the fact that he uh, is the fact sorry is the supernatural uh, uh, rumours or not rumours but like the 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 accusations around it I think is what makes all of us go that is absolutely crazy maybe maybe if you just strip it down a bit and take them away you probably start to recognise a crime that we see have seen more and more of over the last century. Not, I don't, I'm not saying it's getting more, it's not increasing necessarily, but like then it doesn't seem so unique. What makes it unique is this like absurd, uh, allegation around it. And then obviously that that she's burned, which is very unusual. Um, but when you strip it, you know, the, the extreme violence, the, threat that she poses, maybe all these things. Then you start to see a, a story we've all heard before and one that maybe you know we all hear since, you know.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that's a really good point point. Um, and probably a good point to wrap this up. Uh, I think we'll just leave that there. So, Finn, where can people find you on the internet?
2: So if people want to check out Irish History Podcast, and you can find that in, in iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, Or if you just go to my website, irishhistorypodcast.ie, there's like over 100 podcasts on all different aspects of Irish history, including actually a few podcasts around this topic as well. And you've got a live tour coming up, haven't you? Yeah, no, so I have a tour coming up on April the 20th, which actually follows uh, in the footsteps of probably the most famous witchcraft trial in Ireland, which took place in 1324, uh, when a woman called Alice Kittler was accused of witchcraft. And this trial would actually go on to influence trials all across Europe and even echoed right through into the famous Salem trials. So on April 20th, I'm taking a coach from Dublin, where we're going to go and see all the places associated with that trial. Amazing.
0: And I will also include links to all of Finn's sites and stuff in the show notes so you can see there. And thanks for coming on today, man, and yeah, you know, giving your time to Dark Histories. It's been a real pleasure. It was great to be on. Thanks a million for having me on. Cheers. So I think we'll probably wrap up the podcast there because it's already going to be running quite late at this point. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed the sort of extra segment there with Finn. It was really great having him on. And it's something I'd like to do a little bit more. I'm going to be reaching out to some other podcasters um, when topics are relevant and sort of having them on as guests and, having a chat and getting some of their knowledge and expertise on the show. So that's going to be something really exciting to look forward to for this season. Uh, If you'd like to find us anywhere on social media, it's Dark Histories pretty much everywhere. If you go to darkhistories.com, you can find links to all that. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everything. Uh, If you'd like to support, you can also find links to that there. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I will see you in a couple of weeks. Well, actually, that's not true, is it? Because I'm doing my daily episodes now. So I'll see you next Monday, I guess. Tomorrow. Until then, which isn't very long, take care, sleep tight.